Chapter 14 of The Spirit of the Age, or Contemporary Portraits by William Hazlitt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 14. Mr. Brome and Sir Francis Burdett. There is a class of eloquence which has been described and particularly insisted on under the style and title of Irish eloquence. There is another class which it is not absolutely unfair to oppose to this, and that is the Scotch. The first of these is entirely the offspring of impulse, the last of mechanism. The one is as full of fancy as it is bare of facts. The other excludes all fancy and is weighed down with facts. The one is all fire, the other all ice. The one nothing but enthusiasm, extravagance, eccentricity the other nothing but logical deductions and the most approved postulates. The one, without scruple, may, with reckless zeal, throws the reins loose on the neck of the imagination. The other pulls up with a curb bridle and starts at every casual object it meets in the way as a bugbear. The genius of Irish oratory stands forth in the naked majesty of untutored nature, its eyes glancing wildly around on all subjects, its tongue darting forked fire. The genius of Scottish eloquence is armed in all the panoply of the schools. Its drawling, ambiguous dialect seconds its circumspect dialects. From behind the visor that guards its mouth and shadows its pent-up brows, it sees no visions but its own set purpose, its own data, and its own dogmas. It has no figures nor no fantasies, but those which busy care draws in the brains of men or which set off its own superior acquirements and of wisdom. It scorns to tread the primrose path of dalliance. It shrinks back from it as from a precipice, and keeps in the iron railway of the understanding. Irish oratory, on the contrary, is a sort of aeronaut. It is always going up in a balloon and breaking its neck, or coming down in the parachute. It is filled full with gaseous matter, with whim and fancy, with alliteration and antithesis, with heated passion and bloated metaphors that burst the slender silken covering of sense and the airy pageant that glittered in empty space and rose in all the bliss of ignorance flutters and sinks down to its native bogs if the irish orator riots in a studied neglect of his subject and a natural confusion of ideas playing with words ranging them into all sorts of fantastic combinations because in the unlettered void or chaos of his mind there is no obstacle to their coalescing in any shapes they please it must be confessed that the eloquence of the scotch is encumbered with an excess of knowledge that it cannot get on for a crowd of difficulties that it staggers under a load of topics that it is so environed in the forms of logic and rhetoric as to be equally precluded from originality or absurdity from beauty or deformity the plea of humanity is lost by going through the process of law. The firm and manly tone of principle is exchanged for the wavering and pitiful cant of policy. The living bursts of passion are reduced to a defunct commonplace, and all true imagination is buried under the dust and rubbish of learned models and imposing authorities. If the one is a bodiless phantom, the other is a lifeless skeleton, if the one in its feverish and hectic extravagance resembles a sick man's dream the other is akin to the sleep of death cold stiff unfeeling monumental 
Upon the whole, we despair less of the first than of the last, for the principle of life in motion is, after all, the primary condition of all genius. The luxuriant wildness of the one may be disciplined, and its excesses sobered down into reason, but the dry and rigid formality of the other can never burst the shell or husk of oratory. It is true that the one is disfigured by the puerilities and affectation of a Phillips, but then it is redeemed by the manly sense and fervor of a Plunkett, and the impassioned appeals and flashes of wit of a Curran, and by the golden tide of wisdom, eloquence, and fancy that flowed from the lips of a Burke. In the other, we do not sink so low in the negative series, but we get no higher in the ascending scale than a Mackintosh or a Brahm. Footnote. It may be suggested that the late Lord Erskine enjoyed a higher reputation as an orator than either of these, but he owed it to a dashing and graceful manner, to presence of mind, and to great animation in delivering his sentiments. Stripped of these outward and personal advantages, the matter of his speeches, like that of his writings, is nothing, or perfectly inert and dead. Mr. Brougham is from the north of England but he was educated in Edinburgh and represents that school of politics and political economy in the house. He differs from Sir James Mackintosh in this, that he deals less in abstract principles and more in individual details. He makes less use of general topics and more of immediate facts. Sir James is better acquainted with the balance of an argument in old authors. Mr. Brougham with the balance of power in Europe. If the first is better versed in the progress of history, no man excels the last in a knowledge of the course of exchange. He is apprised of the exact state of our exports and imports, and scarce a ship clears out its cargo at Liverpool or Hull, but he has notice of the bill of lading. Our colonial policy, prison discipline, the state of the hulks, agricultural distress, commerce and manufactures, the bullion question, the Catholic question, the Bourbons or the Inquisition, domestic treason, foreign levy, nothing can come amiss to him. He as at home in the crooked mazes of rotten boroughs is not baffled by Scotch law and can follow the meaning of one of Mr. Canning's speeches. With so many resources, with such variety and solidity of information, Mr. Brahm is rather a powerful and alarming than an effectual debater. In so many details, which he himself goes through with unwearied and unshrinking resolution, the spirit of the question is lost to others who have not the same voluntary power of attention or the same interest in hearing that he has in speaking. The original impulse that urged him forward is forgotten in so wide a field, in so interminable a career. If he can, others cannot carry all he knows in their heads at the same time. A rope of circumstantial evidence does not hold well together, nor drag the unwilling mind along with it. The willing mind hurries on before it and grows impatient and absent. He moves in an unmanageable procession of facts and proofs, instead of coming to the point at once, and his premise, so anxious is he to proceed on sure and ample grounds, overlay and block up his conclusions so that you cannot arrive at it or nod till the first fury and shock of the onset is over the ball from the too great width of the calibre from which it is sent and from striking against such a number of hard projecting points is almost spent before it reaches its destination he keeps a ledger or a debtor and creditor account between the government and the country 
post so many actual crime, corruption, and injustice against so much contingent advantage or sluggish prejudice, and at the bottom of the page brings in the balance of indignation and contempt where it is due. But people are not to be calculated into contempt or indignation on abstract grounds, for however they may submit to this process where their own interests are concerned, in what regards the public good we believe they must see and feel instinctively, or not at all. There is, it is to be lamented, a good deal of froth as well as strength in the popular spirit, which will not admit of being decanted or served out in formal driblets, nor will spleen, the soul of opposition, bear to be corked up in square patent bottles and kept for future use. In a word, Mr. Brahms is ticketed and labeled eloquence, registered and innumerous like the successive parts of a Scotch encyclopedia. It is clever, knowing, imposing, masterly, an extraordinary display of clearness of head, of quickness and energy of thought, of application and industry. But it is not the eloquence of the imagination or the heart, and will never save a nation or an individual from perdition. Mr. Brom has one considerable advantage in debate. He is overcome by no false modesty, no deference to others. But then, by a natural consequence or parity of reasoning, he has little sympathy with other people, and is liable to be mistaken in the effect his arguments will have upon them. He relies too much, among other things, on the patience of his hearers, and on his ability to turn every thing to his advantage. He accordingly goes to the full length of his tether, in vulgar phrase, and often overshoots the mark. C'est dommage, he has no reserve of discretion, no retentiveness of mind, or check upon himself. He needs, with so much wit, as much again to govern it. He cannot keep a good thing or a shrewd piece of information in his possession, though the letting it out should mar a cause. It is not that he thinks too much of himself, too little of his cause, but he is absorbed in the pursuit of truth as an abstract inquiry. He is led away by the headstrong and overmastering activities of his own mind. He is borne along, almost involuntarily and not impossibly, against his better judgment, by the throng and restlessness of his ideas as by a crowd of people in motion. His perceptions are literal, tenacious, epileptic, his understanding voracious of facts and equally communicative of them, and he proceeds to pour out all as plain as downright shippin' or as old Montaigne, without either the virulence of the one or the bon homme of the other. The repeated, smart, unforeseen discharges of the truth jar those that are next to him. He does not dislike this state of irritation and collision, indulges his curiosity or his triumph, till by calling for more facts or hazarding some extreme inference, he urges a question to the verge of a precipice, his adversaries urge it over, and he himself shrinks back from the consequence, scared at the sound himself has made. Mr. Brom has great fearlessness, but not equal firmness, and after going too far on the forlorn hope, turns short round without due warning to others or respect for himself. He is adventurous, but easily panic-struck, and sacrifices the vanity of self-opinion to the necessity of self-preservation. He is too improvident for a leader, too petulant for a partisan, and does not sufficiently consult those with whom he is supposed to act in concert. He sometimes leaves them in the lurch, and is sometimes left in the lurch by them. He wants the principle of cooperation, 
he frequently in a fit of thoughtless levity gives an unexpected turn to the political machine which alarms older and more experienced heads if he was not himself the first to get out of harm's way and escape from the danger it would be well we hold indeed as a general rule that no man born or bred in scotland can be a great orator unless he is a mere quack or a great statesman unless he turns plain knave the national gravity is against the first the national caution is against the last to a scotsman if a thing is it is there is an end of the question with his opinion about it he is positive and abrupt and is not in the habit of conciliating the feelings or soothing the follies of others his only way therefore to produce a popular effect is to sail with the stream of prejudice and to vent common dogmas the total grist unsifted husks and all from some evangelical pulpit this may answer and it has answered on the other hand if a scotsman born or bred comes to think at all of the feelings of others it is not as they regard them but as their opinions reacts on his own interest and safety he is therefore either pragmatical and offensive or if he tries to please he becomes cowardly and fawning his public spirit wants pliancy his selfish compliances go all links he is as impracticable as a popular partisan as he is mischievous as a tool of government we do not wish to press this argument farther and must leave it involved in some degree of obscurity rather than bring the armed intellect of a whole nation on our heads mr brougham speaks in a loud and unmitigated tone of voice sometimes almost approaching to a scream he is fluent rapid vehement full of his subject with evidently a great deal to say and very regardless of the manner of saying it as a lawyer he has not hitherto been remarkably successful he is not profound in cases and reports nor does he take much interest in the peculiar features of a particular cause or show much adroitness in the management of it he carries too much weight of metal for ordinary and petty occasions he must have a pretty large question to discuss and must make thorough stitch work of it he however had an encounter with mr phillips the other day and shook all his tender blossoms so that they fell to the ground and withered in an hour but they soon bloomed again mr brougham writes almost if not quite as well as he speaks in the midst of an election contest he comes out to address the populace and goes back to his study to finish an article for the edinburgh review sometimes indeed wedging three or four articles in the shape of refacimentos of his own pamphlets or speeches in parliament into a single number such indeed is the activity of his mind that it appears to require neither repose nor any other stimulus than a delight in its own exercise he can turn his hand to anything but he cannot be idle there are few intellectual accomplishments which he does not possess and possess in a very high degree he speaks french and we believe several other modern languages fluently is a capital mathematician and obtained an introduction to the celebrated carnot in this latter character when the conversation turned on squaring the circle and not on the propriety of confining france within the natural boundaries of the rhine mr brougham is in fact a striking insistence of the versatility and strength of the human mind and also in one sense of the length of human life if we make a good use of our time there is room enough to crowd almost every art and science into it if we pass no day without a line 
visit no place without the company of a book, we may, with ease, fill libraries or empty them of their contents. Those who complain of the shortness of life, let it slide by them without wishing to seize and make the most of its golden minutes. The more we do, the more we can do. The more busy we are, the more leisure we have. If any one possesses any advantage in a considerable degree, he may make himself master of nearly as many more as he pleases by employing his spare time in cultivating the waste faculties of his mind. While one person is determining on the choice of a profession or study, another shall have made a fortune or gained a merited reputation. While one person is dreaming over the meaning of a word, another will have learnt several languages. It is not incapacity, but indolence, indecision, want of imagination, and a proneness to a sort of mental tautology, to repeat the same images and tread the same circle that leave us so poor, so dull, and inert as we are so naked of acquirement, so barren of resources. While we are walking backward and forward between Charing Cross and Temple Bar and sitting in the same coffee-house every day, we might make the grand tour of Europe and visit the Vatican and the Louvre. Mr. Brom, among other means of strengthening and enlarging his views, has visited, we believe, most of the courts and turned his attention to most of the constitutions of the continent. He is no doubt a very accomplished, active-minded, and admirable person. Sir Francis Burdett, in many respects, affords a contrast to the foregoing character. He is a plain, unaffected, unsophisticated English gentleman. He is a person of great reading, too, and considerable information. But he makes very little display of these, unless did it be to quote Shakespeare, which he does often with extreme aptness and felicity. Sir Francis is one of the most pleasing speakers in the house, and is a prodigious favorite of the English people. So he ought to be, for he is one of the few remaining examples of the old English understanding and old English character. All that he pretends to is common sense and common honesty, and a greater compliment cannot be paid to these than the attention with which he is listened to in the House of Commons. We cannot conceive a higher proof of courage than the saying things which he has been known to say there, and which seen him blush and appear ashamed of the truths he has been obliged to utter like a bashful novice. He could not have uttered what he often did there, if besides his general respectability he had not been a very honest, a very good-tempered, and a very good-looking man. But there was evidently no wish to shine or any desire to offend. It was painful to him to hurt the feelings of those who heard him but it was a higher duty in him not to suppress his sincere and earnest convictions. It is wonderful how much virtue and plain dealing a man may be guilty of with impunity, if he has no vanity or ill-nature or duplicity to provoke the contempt or resentment of others, and to make them impatient of the superiority he sets up over them. We do not recollect that Sir Francis ever endeavored to atone for any occasional indiscretions or intemperance by giving the duke of york credit for the battle of waterloo or congratulating ministers on the confinement of bonaparte at st helena there is no honest cause which he dares not avow no oppressed individual that he is not forward to succour he has the firmness of manhood with the unimpaired enthusiasm of youthful feeling about him his principles are mellowed and improved without having become less sound with time for at one period he sometimes appeared to come charged to the house with the petulance and caustic sententiousness he had imbibed at Wimbledon Common, 
He is never violent or in extremes, except when the people or the Parliament happen to be out of their senses, and then he seems to regret the necessity of plainly telling them he thinks so, instead of pummeling himself upon it or exulting over impending calamities. There is only one error he seems to labor under, which we believe he also borrowed from Mr. Horne Took or Major Cartwright, the wanting to go back to the early times of our Constitution and history in search of the principles of law and liberty, he might well hunt half a day for a forgotten dream. Liberty, in our opinion, is but a modern invention, the growth of books and printing, and whether new or old is not the less desirable. A man may be a patriot without being an antiquary. This is the only point on which Sir Francis is at all inclined to a tincture of pedantry. In general, his love of liberty is pure, as it is warm and steady. His humanity is unconstrained and free. His heart does not ask leave of his head to feel, nor does prudence always keep a guard upon his tongue or his pen. No man writes a better letter to his constituents than the member for Westminster, and his compositions of that kind ought to be good, for they have occasionally cost him dear. He is the idol of the people of Westminster. Few persons have a greater number of friends and well-wishers, and he has still greater reason to be proud of his enemies, for his integrity and independence have made them so. Sir Francis Burdett has often been left in a minority in the House of Commons with only one or two at his side. We suspect, unfortunately for his country, that history will be found to enter its protest on the same side of the question. Footnote. Mr. Brom is not a Scotchman literally, but by adoption. End of chapter 14. The Spirit of the Age or Contemporary Portraits by William Hazlitt.